I have some notes here somewhere. I, <clears throat> look, um, just a small acknowledgement at the beginning for good old New Zealanders. They've won the Bledisloe Cup again. They kicked Aussie butt at Eden Park as they have a tendency to do. I think the Hark is scary enough <laughs> having to go to Eden's Park and try to play football with them. Some of you are saying, oh, what's the Bledisloe Cup? Is that something to do with the VFL? No, sorry. You'll have to ask them later. Congratulations, you guys, and all of us that are across the ditch. But um, you did well. Well, if you wouldn't mind opening your Bibles at, uh, at Matthew chapter 16, where, where Kay has read from this morning. Very familiar verses to, to many of us, I, I guess, in, in our journey of faith. And, um, and yet, <laughs> every time, this is the living word, isn't it? You, know, you, you read some things and then all of a sudden it comes fresh to you. Or it's almost like you, 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 you're missing something um, or that you haven't seen before. It's something that the Holy Spirit does, I believe. It's almost like you can turn on a spiritual highlighter on the word of God as you read it and, and some things become become alive to you in that moment because that's how the Lord is breaking his living word amongst us. So what might he say to you this morning? What might he have to say to me and how might it each differ? Um, it's, it certainly is an interesting, interesting thing. Now, Jesus is some years into his ministry here where we are in Matthew, he, he's been doing great miracles, he has been teaching uh, the word and if you go into the earlier part of, <clears throat> of Matthew in the Sermon on the Mount and Monty has done a series on that in recent times where the folks, the people, the crowd uh, listen to Jesus preach. Just turn this a little bit sideways so hopefully it won't pop quite as much. Um, and and the reaction of the people was uh, he taught as one who had authority and not as the scribes, is one way it's kind of said. There was a, there was a dimension to Jesus' ministry as he wandered around the, the countryside, in a sense, as a rabbi and garnering a following, as rabbis tended to do, um, there was something that set him apart. There was a stamp of authority on him and it spoke to people's hearts and minds in a way that they had not experienced. Um, and it's not necessarily a negative criticism against the teaching that was being given by, by the religious authorities of the day and the way that they were well schooled in the law and the Torah, in the prophets, in the writings of the, the Hebrew scriptures and uh, it, it's, it's just that that um, Jesus was the living word and, and there was something undeniable about him. And so the question that Jesus asks in the passage that Kay read is a very pertinent question. There's time now, there's some history, there's some water under the bridge. This Jesus of Nazareth who was raised by, by his parents Joseph and Mary as a carpenter has come out of obscurity and garnering a following such that the multitudes, they would say, he, he, he had just completed here 
a, a, a miracle uh, in 15 where he fed the 4,000. This wasn't the feeding of the 5,000 with the loaves and the fishes. This was a second a similar miracle. And we can talk about whether it meant including men, women and children or it was just a head count for the blokes or whatever. It doesn't really matter. The fact is that uh, Jesus had the capacity to create very practical miracles. There were no Maccas up the street um, or a, you know, 7-Eleven you could pop into out of hours. Jesus fed vast amounts of people through very small beginnings. And, and so who... Is he? Who is this man? What do we make of it? Not so long before, uh, he cast a demon out of some poor fella, and and it fires up fires up the religious intelligentsia, the the, the holder, the power holders of our our hearts, if you like, you know, in terms of matters of faith in that community, uh, in that region, and and so their way of dealing with it was not to be amazed by the miracle and go, we must believe, you know, surely this is, this Jesus is from God. It, it was more, uh, well, it must be the devil, it must be Beelzebub, you, you know, that's caused this. <laughs> Anything but to accept or maybe even contemplate the magnitude of the person Jesus and what it might be. Now, if we go to the beginning of 16, you see this is kind of where it gets a bit nuts. Here he is, he's doing all these wonders and again, only just a few chapters after, after they'd asked him before and, and quite likely a, an official question. The Sadducees and the Pharisees were part of, of a 71-member Sanhedrin that were like the, the boss of the bosses you know, of, of the church and, and uh, they were different kind of groups. They were different sects within the, the leadership, the, Sar- the Pharisees and the Sadducees. The Sadducees had some differing thoughts they, they, you know, over oral law and written law and they disagreed about what you could trust. But the real bad, real sorry thing for the Sadducees is that they didn't believe in, in life after death. They didn't believe in heaven. That was why they were sad, you see. Now I have to say it, didn't I? How many of you have not used that joke? in the last 50 years that you've walked that planet because that joke is that old. But <laughs> here they were, so it's likely that it was a formal official question. Give us a sign, Jesus. From verse 1, the Pharisees and Sadducees of Matthew 16 came to Jesus and tested him by asking him to show them a sign from heaven. For heaven's sake. Is that being blasphemous? I don't know. Are you nodding in assent? No? Oh, all right. I'll let your yes be yes. All right, thank you, darling. And my no be no. Verse 2, he replied, When evening comes, you say, It will be fair weather for the sky is red. And in the morning today it will be stormy for the sky is red and overcast. You know how to interpret the appearance of the sky, but you cannot interpret the signs of the times. A wicked and adulterous generation looks for a miraculous sign, but none will be given it except the sign of Jonah. Jesus then left them and went away. Some of us might be aware of Paulie Little. He is an apologist, say, a, a Christian apologist down through, say, the 60s and such. He used to go and speak at college campuses in the States uh, all the time and give, uh, if you like, an apologetic 
uh, an argument for the faith. He, he just knew how things... There's lots of evidence for the faith. There's, 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 in, amongst serious scholarship, there is no, no conjecture over whether Jesus actually was a historical figure. That's an understood fact of reality. It's, it's all this other divine dimension and stuff that creates havoc and whether he actually did die and rose again and all of that kind of stuff. He was preaching at one particular campus one, one, one um, Tuesday morning and he presented his apologetic for the Christian faith and for the real Jesus. And a, a young student, quite a, an articulate young man, a philo, philo, philosophy student, uh, came to him after and he said, you know, Paul, or Mr Little, I guess they might say, uh, what you presented this morning was very, very powerful. It, it really is an argument for the veracity of the Christian faith and the declaration of Jesus Christ as the saviour of the human race. Um, you present a very strong argument. And Paul said to him, well, that's fantastic, so I, you know, are you going to become a Christian? Are you going to follow Jesus? And, and he said, no. Um, while I, I understand what you've said and I, I have mental assent to that, I know that if I do step out and follow Jesus, I will have to change my life too much and I, I won't do that. And at the end of the day, like I guess the rich young ruler, he went away and left that thing. It's not about proofs. It's not about evidence and argument that gets faith. For this young man, it came down to a moral question, not an intellectual one. Yeah, look, and, and people on honest searches, the guy who wrote Ben-Hur went out to prove the Bible wrong, you know. Um, people have done it down through the centuries, have sought to disprove Jesus because they need to put him away, <laughs> you know. And there's that statement, is, is he liar, is he a lunatic or is he actually Lord? Because, you know, he's seen amongst other religious uh, uh, traditions as a, a great prophet, one of the foremost prophets in some religious traditions and, and yet they won't acknowledge what he allowed, accepted and in the end declared his sonship, his divinity of the, to the living God. Uh, so, well, surely he was lying or he was deluded or something. How can you, on one hand, treat Jesus as a wonderful teacher or a great prophet announced at the end of this, the previous millennium as the man of the millennium? The churches didn't get together and decide that. Somehow, somewhere in the world, it was decided that Jesus was actually the man of the millennium as we entered into the 2000s. How can we have that person and yet choose to, to kind of separate from his persona and his story and his history the issue of whether he is actually who he claimed to be, the son of the living God. He says here the sign of Jonah. You'll only be given the sign of Jonah. I guess most scholars agree that that sign of Jonah was where Jonah, and he explains himself, he goes back, if you go back to Matthew 12, he talks about it once again. The Pharisees and the teachers of the law said to him, Teacher, verse 38 in, verse 12, in chapter 12, we want you to see a miraculous sign from you. And he again challenged them as a wicked and adulterous uh, generation wanting a miraculous sign. It's interesting how he mentions adulterous each time. What, what is that? Wicked is, is surely enough. I, I, I sometimes wonder whether that strikes at the very heart of our personhood. 
of our soul, of our spirit. Um, people talk sometimes about um, establishing soul ties with any sexual partner that you have and, and the implications of that. I, I'm not quite sure where I sit on that. Um, certainly the, the, the effort to try to bring it undone and say it doesn't mean anything uh, in, in our culture today. Um, you know, do whatever pleases you and stuff. Uh, I think under the surface we are actually undoing ourselves as humanity much more powerfully than it would seem at a surface level. So faithfulness, purity, honesty, steadfast love, uh, setting boundaries about our, our lives are virtues that actually bring us into freedom rather than bringing us more into a thicket and a morass of complication and soul-destroying attitudes. The sign of Jonah, Jonah was in the whale or in the fish for three days. Jesus was referring and he explains it here in in Matthew chapter 12 uh, that for as Jonah in verse 40 was three days and three nights in the belly of a huge fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. And not a discussion about the technicalities of days and nights because in fact it didn't actually matter to the, to the biblical writer. Uh, nights didn't have to be included. If you do your math, you know it's technically not three days and three nights from you know, Friday evening through the Sabbath into Sunday morning. So that, just live with that because it is well argued if you want to pursue it. <clears throat> Jesus was producing miracles. He was casting out demons. And the sin of pride, the sin of pride. I wonder whether pride is perhaps the worst sin of all. The sin of pride brings blindness to our discernment, to our wisdom, to our understanding, to our attitudes, to our perceptions. Pride was at the root of all of these questions to Jesus. People didn't want to be him to be proved right. They wanted to be able to find something to prove him wrong, and go and and and, and missing and the the reality of what was going on. Their hearts were not ready to receive, did not want to receive what in fact they were being seen. They were seeing being played out before them. The sin of pride. I guess we might say that that was where it all began with, with Lucifer, the angel of light, the highest of the high in the angelic host, aspired within himself to become the king of heaven and hence his downfall. Pride comes before a fall. Let's read verse 5 on from chapter 16. When they went across the lake, this is an interesting story too, uh, the disciples forgot to take bread. Be careful, Jesus said to them. Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Okay, they'd just been having a little bit of a joust with the Pharisees and the Sadducees and he's in the boat. They forgot bread and he says he's warning them against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. Verse 7, they discussed this amongst themselves and said... It's because we didn't bring the bread. This is why he's talking about the yeast of the Sadducees and the Pharisees, because we didn't bring the bread. Aware of their discussion, Jesus asked, 
You of little faith, why are you talking among yourselves about having no bread? Do you still not understand? Don't you remember the five loaves for the 5,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? Or the seven loaves for the 4,000 and how many basketfuls you gathered? How is it you don't understand that I'm not talking to you about bread? Be on your guard against the yeast of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. For heaven's sake, how thick are this mob? I mean, we'd get it, wouldn't we? If we were there in the boat, we would have got it, wouldn't we? Don't you see so much of ourselves in these stories? Wouldn't you love to have been slapped in the pages of the Bible for all of eternity? Great. All my failings, my lack of faith. Verse 12. Then they understood that he was not telling them to guard against the yeast used in bread. No, but against the teaching of the Pharisees and the Sadducees. 1 Corinthians 8, um, 1 and 2, which was uh, Rob, Rob Day, I think, preached out of this. We're still continuing the, the series in 1 Corinthians, but we're taking a little break from it, working around our schedule Now concerning things sacrificed to idols, we know that we all have knowledge. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. Knowledge makes arrogant, but love edifies. And Jesus was warning his disciples against the pride, the arrogance that comes from religious knowledge. Specifically religious knowledge. You get this kind of puffing up of pride and arrogance in academia and any and in government, in politics, in all kinds of places where my qualifications and my knowledge uh, are seen as very, very worthwhile and, and I be, can become arrogant in that. And Jesus just cuts the legs out from underneath all of that and said, <laughs> knowledge just puffs up but love edifies. Be wary of that kind of attitude that sort of self-pride that can creep into my faith. Look at where our religious leaders are, perhaps Jesus is challenging them about. Think about what it's doing to them. See the blindness. See what they don't see. Be aware of the fact that your journey of life and, and your faith and your relationship with me has got nothing to do with letters after your name. Those things can help, but they do not make you. They do not define you. In fact, they can bring you undone if you're not careful, if you let it rule. In effect, religion is death. Religion is death. We see it every day around the world. Religion is death. Relationship is life. Relationship with the living God is life. That is a crucial defining difference between what the Christian faith would declare to its world and all of other world religions and philosophies and ways of understanding. There is a core central difference that sets us apart whether we like it or not. Judaism and Christianity are in the same boat. And we might argue that there are elements of relationship in other philosophies and other religions. This is central to Christianity. This is what 
defines us as a people. And can I say, just as a challenge, see if you can discern the enemy's sucker punches when they start coming at you. Oh, I don't like that church. Um, music's not good enough. Um, they've got a rough old building. You know, where's the stuff for my kids? Um, there's nobody my age. All kinds of sucker punches. We, it's, it's such a common thing. Uh, discussions about, well, do you use real wine or grape juice in your communion? You know, because that's pretty important to me. Well, okay, well, yeah, I, I get that. I can understand that there's sound thinking and teaching and understanding in these things and, the, and some of our, our traditions are hard held and have come to us because of what we believe the Lord is saying to us. Just be wary, use some discernment. This is such an easy thing for the enemy. So that's why it's a sucker punch. You know, somebody can be enjoying fellowship in the life of a church for months, for even years, but they'll come to a point where there's some kind of apt, apt aspect of the church's practice that is not what they want and split them off from the body and the fellowship just like that. Easy. (laughs) Sucker punch. When have we gone to before the Lord and said, well Lord, where do you want me to serve? Where do you want me to put down my roots? What do you see in the future that I don't see is actually here now? How might I be part of that church coming into and seeing ministry grow and develop and being shaped into your likeness that I will be crucial for, that I will be critical, a critical part of that. Instead, we're living even more so in a day where the Christian herd just floats from one church to another, goes as long as they're happy and then they get something that knocks them out of whack so boom, they're gone. And, and we wonder why we're struggling um, to have any real impact in our community because we can't speak with one voice. We are not in love with each other. We, there is not that unity amongst us as a body. It seems like sometimes more a competition. And, and we argue about minor things. And we, 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 we get kind of real nitpicky. And it's not to say that the Lord can't use those things. Sometimes, you know, uh, I, I've, for me growing up and, and being a Christian for the best part of my life and seeing so many different church practices and, and, and modes of operation and all of that, I've, I've come, it's, it's no more about whether I'm right or not. It's no more about proving that I'm in the right position. I, that's how I grew up. I had this nice little bubble I grew up in where everything that I believed and was taught was right. That was the truth. First time I saw a woman get up and pray in a service, it was a Calandra Methodist. Those Methodists, you've got to watch them. It was a Sunday night. This woman got up and prayed in the meeting. I was mortified. No, we're not. So it causes me to go back to my faith and my word and the word of God and say, what is God saying? What do I hold fast to? What hills will I die on? But let's not get carried away with, with so much of that stuff because you know I think it was C.S. Lewis that said the closer we are to each of our traditions the closer we are to each other and if you get to the right the core of it go right back to the core and the heart of Catholicism go right back to the core and the heart of Methodism and, and, and the Pentecostal movement and the Brethren movement and, and get to the core of it what inspired these moves of God into being and hang on to those things and, and, and there there is unity. There there is mutual love. There we stand as one. 
and the other things, discerning what are actually peripheral and should not divide us and break us off and, and maybe the, we then all get to suffer. And, and there are a lot of folks in homes out here this morning, you might have friends, family, yourselves, you might even be one who's kind of, ah, oh, you know, am I in or out or are you floating in between? You know, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. This is what we do. We come, we serve, we be in worship. We set the, the compass of our lives according to these things. So many of our brothers and sisters are out of fellowship and sitting in their homes watching Sunday morning television or doing great things with the family and other things like that. We live in a very pressured world. Lots and lots of options. But however, what if we could redeem the lost fellowship of just those that already know the Lord and, and those that wouldn't see that they've lost their faith but somehow they're not active within the body? Powerful things and you know, I've, I've, I've got to tell you, I've fallen for a few sucker punches myself over the years. You know, one thing I realised, and we'll move on to the actual part of the sermon, that the passage that the sermon's about. I'm keeping my eye on the, the clock too as well. I remember one bloke saying when I was a kid, we should be prepared to be here all day when we're with the Lord. And it's true. But everybody's thinking about the roast that is cooking in the oven. Um, <laughs> where was I? I was going to make a really good point. When Jesus came to the region of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, did anybody realise, where, remember where I was? I was going to make a point. Come on, Emma. Give it to me. What, where did I get to? I oh, thank you. That's true. You know one thing I realised... I, look, I, it's fitting, it was definite and I remember this and it's actually helped me in my life since then because this was prior to ministry days, if you like, or formal days. I'd have, you know, wake up in the morning or it'd be the afternoon before going to the night service at night and I kind of, I, oh, I don't know that I really want to go. You know, I'd have one of those kind of things. We all know that, what that's like. Oh, well, I, will, I won't, oh, yeah, gee, you know. And, and I wouldn't go and somebody would tell me how fabulous the worship was that day or something and I would feel like I missed out something. It's a little bit like Q&A on the ABC. They advertised last week's show and you go, oh, I missed that. So they try to get you to watch that week's show because of it. I came to recognise that when I started to feel like that, I would actually get a bit intentional and say, I'm going because I'm going to miss something if I don't. And sure enough, something was on the go in the spirit that morning and, and, and I, I came to... to Almost spot the little sucker punch coming at me, you know. Oh, don't, don't worry, Dave. You know, just, just lie in this morning or relax. And, and I would use that as a stimulant to, a stimulus to <laughs> say, I'm going, I'm going. And it was so. It just happened so regularly. In the end, I think the enemy gave up with that one on me. <coughs> this reading that Kay brought then come, brings through this stuff. Jesus comes and he says, who do they say that I am? They say, oh, you, you, you could be Elijah or another way of understanding too is that it, you like Elijah, you like John the Baptist. John the Baptist had just been beheaded. Um, you like Jeremiah you, you, or the prophets. You, you, you're in this groove, you're in this mould and, and 
and here we go. You know, people are talking about Jesus and saying, who is this guy? And he said the critical question, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? And Peter, the inspired uh, declaration that has found its way into the pages of scripture. You, where is it there? Simon Peter in verse 16, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. You are the Messiah, the son, the divine son of the living God. This is the, this is the eternal separator This puts Jesus over here on his own in his rightful place not over here with a bunch of the best top four prophets that might have ever lived. We cannot equate uh, the Buddha with Jesus. We cannot say though Muhammad may have been a, a, a great teacher that he is equal to Jesus. We cannot say Um, that Gandhi is of the status of Jesus and Confucius and any other number of wonderful, powerful contributors to humanity down through the centuries. It's easy, isn't it, just to kind of suck him him into that pool. And and that's where most people are at when, when they talk about Jesus. Most, there's, there would be, even, it's very, very hard to actually be an atheist. Most people are agnostic. They might even say they're atheists, but to intentionally say there is no God is actually a really, really, and almost, and I would argue actually is, an irrational position to take. It, it doesn't have its foundation in logic for me, and I am biased. But the, the, the fact that, um, we try to kind of bring Jesus from this separate high place and put him into along with everybody else and then draw from him along with everybody else um, causes us to decide that he actually isn't who he is claimed to be, who he claims himself to be. And it's our choice, it's our decision whether we believe that or not. Until we figure that, he will have very little impact in our life and he certainly will not bring life change. We might become more moral, we might become more scrupulous in some ways, but it won't change our lives, we'll still be who we are. That understanding of Jesus' divinity, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, is central, is core. Because then we, we then bring this divine Son of God to the cross and figure, well, what does that mean? And as, as I was taught in one theological unit, uh, a theology unit, that it wasn't a sacrificial atoning death, it was in fact an expression of God's love. I can't buy it. Why would you do that? Why, why would you... Put your son through all that he was put through. Hang him on a cross um, and and let's forget about the spiritual for a moment, just the physical pain and suffering of the death and then say, oh, by the way, though, if you don't want to accept Jesus, uh, there are other ways to me. There are other paths to heaven or nirvana or paradise or eternal life or whatever. 
There are other ways, but here's a pretty good way. Why would he do that? You don't take your very, very best and place on him your very, very worst and then create options, you know. So we, once we have decided that Jesus Christ, that Jesus of Nazareth, this rabbi, is the divine son of God and the prophesied and promised Messiah, then we can understand why the cross is so significant and why the fact that he rose again on the third day must be true. It is essential. The Bible says he was the first fruits of those which were to come. The fact that Jesus walked amongst us for a moment in human history in resurrection form, you know, so he could appear and disappear at will, he, he still experienced hunger, what are we to make of all of that? Um, yet he was there but he was somehow different. Jesus forever and ever, amen, from that day on, from the moment of resurrection was not the Jesus that preceded his time coming to earth. He was not flesh before he came to earth. From that moment on, he was always going to be your and my brother. So Jesus took on, and that's an interesting one to contemplate theologically, isn't it? But Jesus, when he came, and so it'd be interesting to kind of lock horns on that is an issue amongst the, the, the believers, you know. How different was Jesus after his resurrection to before he left heaven? Peter's confession of faith was a turning point in the ministry of Jesus. From that moment on he talked less and less about the kingdom of God and more and more about the cross and the suffering. He challenged us. If you go and read the passage after that, he he said, you know, at one moment Peter is making this wonderful declaration, the next moment he's blown the whole thing by saying, Jesus, no, we've got to save you from this thing, this death. And he said, get thee behind me, Satan. Wow. So cool, Peter. He's so cool because you realise we can all blow it really big time and yet Jesus comes along specifically and draws us back like he reinstituted Peter before he went to be with the Father. It's wonderful, wonderful to know that we, we never get, no matter how exasperated Jesus gets, no matter how frustrated our God might get with us and our humanity, he just keeps on welcoming us back and in fact he has high things for each one of us to do, high things. And he says, take up our cross in other words, what is God's purpose for your life? Where might he lead you if you were to give him free reign in your life and in your heart? Because therein lies your peace, your satisfaction, your joy, your sense of fulfilment. Playing half-hearted with God, fitting him in your back pocket, giving him your leftovers. You'll wonder why you're bothered. Let's pray. Oh Lord God, there is so much that you have to say for us, to us. The mystery of the ages. How powerful is your word to us? How life-changing is our life in yours? And as you live your life through us, we, we can live and rise to dimensions of humanity and experience that we never thought possible. 
And so for many of us, Lord, we've journeyed with you for so many years and, and you are, you are a, a rich, um, precious, uh, sweet perfume in, in our lives. You are the very core of our being. You, you are the, the centre of our joy and our destiny and we cannot imagine life without you. For many of us, Lord, we're, we're kind of coming into that. We're building on that or we're seeking to figure it out and, and there's something that tugs at us, Lord. And we wonder maybe what is in store for us. Were we to follow your purpose for each one of us? If, if I was to let you have my life, my aspirations, my career hopes, my marriage hopes or my family hopes... All of those things, if I was to place them on your altar, Lord, are you going to let me down? The genius of life lived at a level that we could never experience, a high, a high calling, a high level, because we have effectively lowered ourselves, humbled ourselves, given of ourselves, under your mighty hand. You knew us, Lord, before we were even beginning to be formed in our mother's womb. And you know the end from the beginning. And so each one of us here this morning, Lord, we have such high possibility, even now, And so, Lord, we would, we would aspire, and for those of us this morning that echo with this sentiment, you think it as, as I say, Lord, we want to declare that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God, and we want that declaration to come from the very centre of our heart and the very centre of our being and the very centre of our aspirations. Because we know if we get that, we will get the rest of it. We will get this life and we can't imagine knowing any other. So Lord, we would ask this morning that you come with fresh revelation because that's what you gave to Peter. You revealed yourself to him and you spoke to him your life-giving word. And we thank you so much that you have designed us to be in relationship, in fellowship with you. Have your way with each one of us, Lord, as we submit our wills to you, our wills to you we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.